Well, it's Halloween, so trick or treat. It's fun to go trick or treating. Yes, those are pictures of a long time ago, a young boy on Halloween. And that's today, Halloween. Have you ever wondered how did Halloween come to be? How did trick-or-treating become such a big deal? The word actually has its origins back in the Catholic Church. It comes from a contracted corruption of All Hallows' Eve. The Eve before All Saints' Day, which is November 1st. This is All Hallows' Eve, tomorrow's All Saints' Day, and November 2nd is All Souls' Day. Designed by the Catholic Church to take earlier celebrations and make them holy and sacred. And since the beginning of the church, those who became believers in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord became known as saints. Not because they were saintly, not because we today are necessarily saintly. We are called saints because when we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we receive his righteousness. In other words, it's Jesus that makes us holy, that sanctifies us, that makes us saints. Saints describes our place before God because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of Jesus, God views us as his holy ones, which is the meaning of the word saint. Slowly over time, the Roman Catholic Church made saints something special. They, they elevated certain people into that saintly role instead of letting it be, as it was originally used, a designation for all believers. It recognized those who were believed to live in holiness or who were martyred or did something miraculous in Jesus' name. But the, the, the basic meaning of the word saint has never changed. Holy one, it describes those who express faith in Jesus Christ, so Paul addressed churches in his writings with greetings like this one to the church in Ephesus, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. October 31st has always been a special day. Even before the formation of the church, going back to the 5th century B.C., back in Celtic Ireland, October 31st was the end of summer. And the Celts celebrated that day, October 31st, as a holiday. Whoops. Samhain, the Celtic New Year. The Celts also believed that on that New Year, the dead could haunt the living. And fearing that on that New Year's Eve, the the spirits of the dead might possess them or move into their houses. The villagers extinguished fires in their homes to make them cold and undesirable. So if you turn off your lights this evening, you're following the example of the ancient Celts back in the fifth century. They would also dress up in ghoulish costumes and noisily parade around the neighborhood believing that if they were destructive, it would frighten away the spirits and they would not seek to possess them. In the first century, Romans adopted a lot of the Celtic practices as their own. 
uh, including a celebration of Samhain, summer's end. And then sometime around the ninth century AD, in Europe, what became later known to us as trick-or-treating got its start. You see, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church, again, believed that the dead didn't immediately go to heaven or hell. They thought they went to this holding place called purgatory, and they would be there for a long, long time, and they had to be perfected during that time in purgatory. The only way out was for living people to pay penance to help speed along their movement towards heaven. So, so much for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can see why Luther nailed his accusations against indulgences and that kind of penance in the 15th century. But on November 2nd, also known as All Saints Day, the day after All, All Souls Day, the day after All Saints Day, poor Christians would walk from village to village and they would beg for soul cakes. The cakes were made out of square pieces of bread with currant, some kind of jam or, or fruit. And the more soul cakes they would receive, the more prayers they would promise to pray for the dead relatives of the donors, thus speeding their way out of purgatory. Hence, trick-or-treating. UPS will pray for you, will get you out of purgatory and into heaven. In the 1840s, Irish immigrants brought Halloween to America. They were fleeing their country's potato famine. And their favorite trick was to knock over the outhouses of their neighbors on Halloween, going back to those Celtic practices of making the place undesirable. Today, Halloween's not so much a recognition of our need to become saints in Jesus or a celebration of those who have been meaningful to our faith journey, recognizing them and celebrating their life and encouragement as it is now a billion-dollar business where kids dress up and get candy. So, trick-or-treat. On this Halloween, this All Hallows' Eve, I want you to not get tricked. I want you to receive the treat of salvation through faith in Jesus, who died and rose again to give you life and God's grace. See, the trick is that most people don't receive this gift. They think that they don't need God, that they don't need forgiveness because I haven't done anything wrong. I don't need grace. Let me tell you, I play a lot of golf, and I've come to believe in grace. That's what happens when you hit your ball and it's headed towards the woods and it bounces off a tree and back into the fairway. That's called grace. We need grace. Otherwise, we'd spend the whole day looking for our balls in the forest and never get out. Jesus died to give you God's grace, to give you hope, new life, a second chance. The trick that people receive and accept is that they don't need God. They don't need that forgiveness because I can make my life better on my own. But I'm here today to tell you that an intelligently designed world where gravity works, mathematics can be used to help you track the, the, the stars across the night sky so that you can sail the oceans without knowing exactly where you are because you can base it on the positions of the stars, is no accident. 
It's not random chance that dictated uh, the world in which we live in. That put together a human being's hand with all of the ligaments and tendons and bones and muscles and skin so that you can actually grab something. It's not random. It's not a result of a big bang that just happened. It's part of God's plan for creation. God is the intelligent designer beyond the intelligent creation that we enjoy. God is the one who spoke the Big Bang into being. It was God in the beginning who created. And he was the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, and bang, creation began. Friends, it takes less faith to believe that the world was created by God than out of chaos, and somehow we rose up out of the muck and mire and became intelligent beings. In fact, it's more intelligent to trust God based on the facts of what we see around us. The Bible tells us that, that the creation itself bears witness that there is a God. We can't escape him. It's intelligent to believe, therefore, in the God of creation. It's intelligent, be, and it, it's helpful because if there is an intelligent God who made creation intelligently, that gives our life meaning and purpose. If I'm not here by chance, then I can ask that question, why am I here? What is it that I'm placed on this earth to do? Who can I be with? Whose life can I impact for the better? I have meaning, I have purpose, because I believe that God created me in love. Believing that God created not only is intelligent, not only does it give meaning, but it also gives me hope. Because all those selfish, self-centered things we do that the Bible calls sins, those things that we know are wrong, they can't be forgiven unless you ask the person you've wronged to forgive you. Ultimately, thinking we're alone and can control our lives completely and our own eternal destiny is the ultimate act of pride, which is the rejection of God as God, and that's called sin. And the only way to be forgiven of that is to repent of that and ask God to forgive you. Still we buy into the trick. Don't buy the trick. God forgives us. We can't be good enough on our own. Just simply obeying the laws and, or making up new laws that we like better that we can't keep doesn't make everything okay. I've often said you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps because of the law of gravity that intelligent design that reminds us there's a maker we need to turn to and ask for help. Well, the other day I was leaving the house, trying to be quiet because it was really early in the morning and my wife was asleep, and I had my backpack with me, and I've got these straps here, and as I walked out, I, I kind of had it down like this, and I stepped on the strap, and as I stepped, guess what happened? My weight, my body wanting to go one way when the strap was pulling me the other way, brought me down to the floor and I fell on my face. I'm not going to do it here because there's steps. <laughs> but you can just imagine pulling yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't lift you. It actually makes you fall down. Don't be tricked. Don't be callous. Don't be like Jesus' disciples were before the resurrection. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die. 
And Mark tells us clearly this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection to them. And, and, and notice the, the immediate reaction of the disciples. After the third time that Jesus has said, I'm going to die and be resurrected. And immediately, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. After three days, I'm going to rise. Oh, Master, we're James and John. We want you to make us the first, uh, put us on your right and your left hand in the kingdom of glory. He's just said he's going to die. That has no connection to what Jesus has been talking about. No connection to what's going on at all. It's at the very least callous. It's a non-response. It's an ignoring. It's a weird scene full of Halloween tricks and no treats as James and John seek to position themselves because of who they are, the cousins of Jesus, to be his right and left hand men as he reigns forever and ever and ever. What does Jesus say? Especially when all the other disciples get mad, he says, you're going to drink the same cup. You're going to experience the same baptism. You're going to, two are going to die, and all the disciples died as martyrs except for one. James was the first to die. Acts 12, 1 and 2 tells us what happened to James as the church was just getting started shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, as the church was growing, it was challenging the rule of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And about that time, King Herod reached out to harm some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. The last to die was another disciple who'd come up and said, hey, let me sit on your right or your left hand. Let everybody know that I'm as important as you are, that I'm your best friend. The longer he lived, the more he understood, though, Jesus' words about loving and serving others. And in the end, we know John as the disciple of love. It's 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us. One of those memory verses that I have stuck in my brain because I sing it. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. Okay, it's your turn. Sing along. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and he who loves is born of God, and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, First John 4, 7 and 8. See, that? I love that one because you never forget the address, because it's part of the song. God loved us. That's the message of the Bible. Jesus foretold his death and how horrible it would be, but he did it because he loved us. He, he bore the weight of our sins so he could give us his righteousness so we could stand innocent before God. That's the treat of the Reformation. That's the treat of the gospel. That's the treat that all Hallow's Eve is supposed to be about. So this Halloween receive the treat of Jesus because he accepted the tricks for you. 
and paid the price for those tricks of being away from God, going back to the the very beginning when Satan tricked Adam and Eve into eating from the tree of knowledge and all the consequences of that act of rebellion that led to death and still leads to death today, Jesus died for us, for you, for me. But when Jesus died, he also tricked the devil. He overcame death and rose again because he died for you and for me. He gave us new life in his name. And in dying and rising again and in living as a man, he taught us how to live. Not to seek the treats, the power and prestige that comes with being God incarnate. Think about it. Jesus could have easily done what Satan tempted to do back in Matthew chapter 4. Just stand up and throw yourself down. The angels will keep you from even bruising your toes and the whole world will recognize you as the Savior and they'll all worship you and we can bypass that death thing. Why did Satan want that to happen? Because if Jesus hadn't died, we wouldn't be saved. We'd still be dead in our trespasses and our sins in our rebellion because there'd never be that forgiveness that came with Jesus' death. He did it for us. He established an everlasting kingdom with him instead of a kingdom where he would live forever and ever and ever and all the generations would be lost as they worshiped him and left and he would become nothing more than another tyrant upon the earth. Jesus endured being spit on and being mocked and being flogged and being hung on a cross and dying for us. And he only asked that those who followed him would follow his example and not seek the power, but seek to serve others. Today, as All Saints' Eve is here, this is Halloween as we call it today, we remember those who died in faith. We celebrate the lives of martyrs, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, aunts and uncles, friends who've died in faith. Those particularly who were willing, like the missionaries in Haiti, to go and share the good news of the gospel at the peril of their own lives so people could know the grace of God. And so we pray for their release. But we know that even if they're not released, they have received and will receive their eternal reward. I hope we follow their example as they follow Jesus. I hope we learn the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples on the road that day so long ago, that we aren't to seek the treats I want all the good stuff, God. I claim all the good stuff. I want the power. I want the homes. I want the cars. I want the money. I want the recognition and the fame. Don't seek the treats. And don't seek the treat giver only for his gifts. That's, that's, that's the lure of the trick, the struggle with prosperity gospel preachers. Oh, yeah, seek God, and he's going to give you the desires of your heart. No. Seek God and he'll give you the desires of his heart. He wants your heart to be like his heart. Don't seek the treat treat giver simply for his gifts. 
seek the Lord and use the gifts that you have been given for his glory. My friends, today is All Hallows' Eve. Happy Halloween. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for your goodness and grace, your love so great for us that you would take on flesh and live among us, teaching us how to live together and love one another and willing enough to bear the punishment for our sin, to pay the price for, for our bullheadedness and stubbornness and selfishness and our desire for all those treats and things that still threaten to keep us separated from you. But you've given us the greatest gift of all, the gift of yourself. So God, help us to set aside all the stuff and the treats and seek you, to know you and love you like you love us. Help us to be able to share from your resources with those who have needs. Give us love for one another that we are willing to serve one another and help one another, not for the glory that we receive, but for your glory and for sharing the good news of your salvation received only through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Sometimes unexpected things happen. Last week I was having breakfast on Wednesday and the phone rang and it was the church secretary. She was calling because there was a literal, this is the correct use of the word literal, waterfall from the ceiling in the attic over the men's restroom. Water was cascading down. There were buckets and they weren't catching nearly a third of it. It was a waterfall kind of like this one right here coming off here, but this one's on purpose. The one that we had was inside and it was not on purpose. I went up into the church attic to find out where the water could be coming from. And there it was, the water heater. Now, who puts a water heater in an attic? I have no idea, you know, but that was the thought some 65 years ago when they built this building. Let's put it up there on that cement slab Let's not put anything around it that has like a hole where if it breaks, it'll catch the water because it'll never do that. But it does. It burst and and, uh, water was everywhere. Uh, We got the water turned off. We got the gas turned off. We called a plumber. In the meantime, we called the trustees. They had to unbolt the safe and move out all the stuff that was in the office and the stuff that was tucked under stuff in the office, stuff we hadn't seen in years. didn't know we even had. We set up fans to try to draw it out. The plumber took care of stuff and people kept coming in my office saying, do we need this? What is this? Where did this come from? It was a mess. And uh, it was noisy and it was turmoil. And so I left to find a quiet place to write this sermon. As Jesus was traveling around, he was... uh, in a mess. He was accosted first by the Pharisees checking out his theology, which was last week's sermon, and then he had lots of kids coming and surrounding him wanting to to talk to him and ask him questions and play with him and be with him. And in the midst of the turmoils, the disciples knew that Jesus liked to get away from time to time to a quiet place to prepare his next message uh, so he could teach people once more. 
So they began to chase away all the kids and rebuke the parents for the audacity to bring these kids to Jesus, the master. His response is one of the best known passages in the Bible, a rebuking of his disciples for their seeking to keep children from coming to him. Almost everyone who's heard the Bible, read the Bible, knows these words of Jesus. Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So this morning I wanna ask the question, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? What does that mean? And I wanna highlight three characteristics of children for us this morning that might help us understand what Jesus meant. But before we do that, let me remind you, there's a distinction between being childlike or childish. Oftentimes we think of children and we think, well, I'm gonna be like a child, so I'm gonna push for my way. I'm gonna be annoying. I'm gonna be, it's my excuse to be immature, right? To, to get what I want and be selfish because that's what a child is. They're childish. No, but childish, yes. Immature, yes. Bratty, pouty, that's not what Jesus was talking about. Childish, that ending ish, usually denotes negative characteristics. So when we're thinking about being selfish and focused on ourself and being unpleasant and having outbursts of anger when we don't get our way, that's not the childlikeness that Jesus was talking about. To be childlike is to talk about the good qualities that a child has that we want to express as an adult. And the first one I wanna focus on this morning is one of the main characteristics of a child. Children are curious. Who hasn't heard a kid say, why, why, why? God wants us to ask why, because he wants us to understand our faith. Children want to understand stuff. They don't know stuff, so they ask why. And we shouldn't be annoyed, we should look at it as an opportunity to share. What happens to us as adults is we get to that point in our lives where we stop asking why and we start telling people why. Because I'm the expert, because I know this, because I've done this before, because I've had experience, so listen to me. So we stop learning. We stop going to the foot of the master and asking why. But it's important to ask why not be experts in our own minds. And this was driven home to me this last week as I was exploring the work of J. Warner Wallace. He's a retired police officer, an investigator who specialized in cold cases. He holds the record for being on Dateline and talking about cold cases and the processes they went through to solve them. Six times, J. Warner Wallace has been on Dateline. What you don't know about J. Warner Wallace is he's now a pastor. He's gone to seminary after he retired from the police force and he uses his expertise as a cold case investigator to share his faith with others. He's the author of the book, 
cold case Christianity. And as I was discovering this man, I, I watched a YouTube video that he made where he described a situation that he was called to as a police officer. There was a, a dead body. And so they called the police. And first the, the police got there and this is what they saw. They saw a table full of all kinds of drug paraphernalia. So they assumed it's a suicide or an over, accidental death, it's an overdose. They didn't look any further than that. That was their job. They said, let's call the coroner. The coroner got there and called the detectives and the de detectives said, why? Has anyone checked the body that's laying face down on the bed? Well, no, we saw this and we thought it was, well, let's see what's under the body. And they lifted the body and they're in, in, as they slightly lifted the body, not trying to disrupt the evidence, they noticed several stab wounds in the man's chest. This was definitely not suicide or accidental overdose. It was a murder investigation and childlike curiosity, willingness to ask why, not just accept things at face value made the difference. What about you? Are you childlike in your faith? Do you want to know more about your faith, more about who Jesus is, what it means to live like a Christian, more about God's will and God's ways. Are you willing to ask why? Because like a child, you want to know the answer. Not like the Pharisees who are trying to make a political point and trap Jesus in a mistake. Amazingly enough, scripture commends curious Christians. Scripture commends curious Christians. It's something that God wants out of us to ask why. Acts 17, 11, the Bereans were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica because they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They didn't just take him at his word, they checked it out. And as a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The Bereans were of more noble character because they had enough faith not to just say, God said it, I believe it, that's all there is to it, but to ask why. To search, to grow in their faith, to maturity, so that their faith wasn't just belief, but it was proved to be right, not something easily forgotten. To be childlike is to be curious, to be willing to ask why, but it also is to be trusting. Because they trusted Paul, they wanted to prove his words to be correct. They went back to what he quoted as authority to see if his authority was correct, if what he said was true. Yes, children ask lots of questions, because they want to know, but also because they trust the people to whom they're asking the questions. They trust their parents who tell them to do things like jump off a diving board into my arms in the pool, even though you can't swim and you might be afraid of drowning in the water. They trust and they jump, even if they're jumping off of high rocks to mom or dad standing below because they believe, they trust that mom and dad will catch them. The kids came to Jesus because they trusted him. 
no stranger danger. They knew who he was. He was the man who taught God's word. He was the one who had compassion and healed people. The children saw it. They knew there was something special about Jesus. The parents saw it, and they encouraged their children to go to him. And when he reached out to bless them, they didn't recoil in fear because his arms came out and his hand was there. They leaned in, ready to have their head patted, their shoulder rubbed, and hear God's blessings pronounced upon them. Trust brings the humility of saying, it's not all about me. I respect the person of authority and I want to sit at their feet. Children may be fiercely independent. I can do it. I'll do it. I do it. I do it. But they also follow the leader because they trust them. Now, when the disciples came, there was a different story. Disciples were a bit scary chasing away those children. We had a new pet in our house now. Uh, we have a chameleon named Clem. We actually found him, and he's a, he's a, he's, he's a great pet. It's, it's fun to feed him and watch him and see his curiosity. Shortly after we had him, we were trying to get some things out of the cage so we could clean it, but in curiosity and in trust, he came down as my hand was in the cage, and I kind of did this. And of course, he recoiled in fear. And immediately I felt bad because here was an animal that had come to trust me and I was scaring it. Fear or trust, what do you want to exhibit to the children of the church? Do you want them to know that this is a place they can come and ask questions, a place they can run and play outside? It's a big, big house because it's our Father's house. Lots of rooms and place of grace where they can trust people to help them grow in their faith and understanding of who Jesus is. Friends, what do we as a congregation, not just me as the pastor or the church staff, Brian and Sally or Mary Ellen as the people who lead you in worship, answer the phones, what do we as a congregation need to do to help children trust Jesus more. See, to be a child is to be curious, to be trusting, but they're also loyal. They are proud of their parents. My dad's the best. Until a certain age, children will defend their parents even if they're wrong. And no matter what the parent does, They'll say, well, they did it because they love me. They believe in the goodness and the invincibility of their parents. And they defend their parents' honor no matter what. How loyal are we to our faith? Will we defend our faith? Can we defend our faith? Are we willing to say, I don't know, but I'll look up the answer with you? We go to Bible study not because we know the answers, we go to Bible study to learn what God's word says so we can hopefully figure out what the answers to those questions are. And if you don't ask the questions, when someone says, why? Why do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? You won't have an answer. You need to stop and think, well, he rose from the dead. Yeah, but what proof is there of that? 
Well, the proof of that isn't just my loyalty, it's the facts. I'm loyal because the facts prove it out. He was seen by over 400 people at one time. That's not a group mirage or hallucination. He was seen over 40 days by different people who could point to time and place and what he did. They saw him eat, they saw him drink, they had conversations with him, they walked with him. There's proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Science proves that he actually died because what came out of his chest was blood and water, the sign of a truly broken heart that had burst as he lay hanging on the cross. Dead and buried, but no body, but still seen by over 400 people. That sounds like something you can trust and something you can be loyal to, to me. When we come to Christ with childlike faith, we are received by Jesus, like the children who were received by Jesus, and we discover that children are precious to God, and they should be precious to us. We take vows at baptism of children that we will be their spiritual mothers and fathers, that we will help the parents to raise them with the knowledge of God's grace and love to the point that they too will stand one day before us in the congregation and say, Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. It's not my parents' faith by which I'm saved. It's my faith because I've asked why and I've trusted and I'm loyal to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. It's time for us to be childlike too but also to encourage our children to be curious, to encourage them to trust in Jesus, to be loyal to Jesus, and for us to be loyal to them by providing them a place to grow in faith and to responsible adults who will be able to defend their faith. Friends, let us be childlike in our faith. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for your love and grace and for this call to trust you, to live for you, and be willing to ask questions to grow in our understanding of who you are. Thank you for this time spent together. Help us to know you and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.